If this is your first time listening to our podcast, welcome. To say a word about this project, our goal is to illuminate the depth and breadth of Dhamma practice in Myanmar. The podcast series features a diverse range of speakers who initially became known to us from our work in creating a meditator's guidebook to the country. And it is a privilege to now be able to bring their own voices into your earbuds. All of our guests have one thing in common, a deep commitment to integrating the Buddhist teachings of liberation into their lives and developing in wisdom. We hope that the diversity of their individual paths may not just educate, but also inspire listeners, as they certainly have done for all of us here. With that, let's get to the show. Sometimes a single moment can be so profound or so complex that it takes hours or even days following the encounter to get a handle on it. And the story that follows, that moment has been taking years to process. This episode is part of our Dhamma Diaries series, in which we describe a single but impactful event that took place in a Buddhist context in Myanmar, and then flesh out its many dimensions to better understand the country, the culture, and the spiritual practice. Past episodes have focused on a struggling European alcoholic being sent to a rural village monastery, where he sobered up and learned Anapana from a Webu Sayada disciple, and another focused on an American monk who accidentally wandered into a remote area in the country and faced a near-death experience as villagers believed him to be a spy. But while today's story very much fits in for the structure of this series, it also dovetails with our current series, The Intersection of Race and Dhamma. In this case, the actual moment in question is simple enough. Yoni, an African-American Vipassana meditator in the tradition of S.N. Goenka, travels to Myanmar to pay homage to the lineage of his teacher and consider monastic ordination. Several days into his stay at a Yangon monastery, he is in the dining hall awaiting lunch when a long-standing Burmese monk aggressively motions for him to leave. And when he doesn't, the monastic hauls off and kicks him. This disturbing incident which in terms of time lasted no more than a minute, is astounding in its complexity and poses many swirling questions to untangle and process. Our conversation unfolds with Yoni and I doing the best to explore its many threads. A preview essay about this story was posted a couple weeks ago on our website and social media accounts, and it generated a wide range of reactions, many of them negative or critical. From these comments, it was clear that a number of readers had been triggered in different ways, which made my podcast team and I acutely aware of the reactions that the full conversation will likely generate. Typically, I use this opening preamble to paint a fuller picture of the upcoming guest or share behind-the-scenes information around the talk. A deeper reflection on the talk is then saved for the post-interview reflection with my co-host, Zach Hessler. 
But given the discomfort this podcast may cause, I'd like to use this time instead to take a step back and explain why, in spite of it all, we are committed to sharing this story. We have also decided that it would be a good idea to front load some of the information that otherwise would emerge from our conversation to help explain our rationale for airing this particular story, as well as the deeper context surrounding it. First, some background. In this episode, because I am personally involved in the story, our talk is not an interview per se, but rather a conversation between Yoni and myself. It is important to emphasize that in our discussion surrounding this moment, we were compelled to talk frankly about the actions of one member of the Burmese Sangha. However, I want to be clear that we have no intent to demean or criticize the entire monastic order. Much of this overall podcast platform, as well as the previous media projects I've worked on throughout the past decade, have been inspired by the humility, selflessness, and wisdom of the Burmese monkhood. Similarly, you'll hear us speak about Burmese culture, but in doing so, our intent was not to engage in a broad critique of the Bamar people or the country of Myanmar, which again, much of this podcast platform is devoted to exploring and illuminating with respect, goodwill, and interest. Finally, we enter into this complex and very challenging discussion fully aware that we are non-Burmese lay practitioners parsing out the behavior of a Burmese monk. Not only are there complex cultural issues at play, but there is also the sensitivity that any layperson needs to bring to bear when speaking about a monastic following a stricter code of discipline. And related to this, we acknowledge that we are non-Burmese commenting on aspects of Burmese culture. Now, I'd like to spend some time addressing the various kinds of responses our social media posts generated. Although uncomfortable at times, it was certainly instructive to consider what was behind some of those earlier negative social media reactions. For example, if I can paraphrase, one went something like this. Okay, so we know that this kind of thing happens in the human realm, but choosing to talk about it like you're doing here distracts from our Dhamma practice and may lead to decreased reverence towards lifelong monastics. This is a can of worms you don't need to open. Just let it go. Well, from our side, we acknowledge that finding a balance between the spiritual and the mundane is a sensitive matter, and one we plan to explore in detail in upcoming episodes. On the one hand, being too much on the side of activism and social or political issues can indeed push the Dhamma aside, while on the other, a willful dismissal of all pressing worldly matters to focus solely on our on-the-cushion practice is pretty much the definition of spiritual bypass. We believe that the story has enormous relevance for a deeper understanding of not only the intersection between Dhamma and race, but also various Burma-Dhamma themes, and we do illustrate in the talk how these mundane issues can impact spiritual growth. So if this question is essentially, is this topic relevant for a platform based on sharing the Dhamma? To us, the answer is a resounding yes. So that's the answer from a spiritual perspective. But speaking personally, I'm also quite attuned these days to the ongoing situation in my own country, where white society is finally being forced to directly confront the systematic racism that has long been part of the American experience. These public conversations are motivated by the desire for greater awareness and healing, and hopefully leading to fundamental positive changes in the United States. One aspect of the Black Lives Matter movement after the police killing of George Floyd is that it became a worldwide phenomenon. People in many countries march to highlight the importance of honestly and openly confronting injustice and solidarity, and have looked to examine the shapes of discrimination within their own societies. This podcast is being aired in that spirit, not calling out racial discrimination and injustice wherever and whenever it happens 
tacitly accepts the harmful impact it afflicts on others. By ignoring it, we allow it to continue. That to me is the opposite of metta and karuna, which I believe are at the core of any Dhamma practice. Still, all that said, I must acknowledge that this is not an easy talk to have. It may well be downright uncomfortable for some to hear, in the same way that it was for some to read in our earlier post. Some of that discomfort took different forms of avoidance, passing the incident off as no big deal or a one-time thing, or to suggest it was a simple cultural or linguistic misunderstanding. Another advised Yoni to rely on his meditation practice and just be more equanimous, and several reminded him to be compassionate as a Dhamma practitioner. Beyond just discomfort, conversations about race and ethnicity can be painful and even triggering for some who have had their own experiences with discrimination for whatever reason. Still, our podcast team felt strongly nonetheless that the potential gain of understanding prejudice outweighed the risks inherent in treading these delicate waters. Simply put, we cannot hope to affect positive change unless we understand, agree on, and discuss what needs changing. Beyond this conversation's challenging nature, it is further complicated by cross-cultural factors. So I'd like to take a moment and describe a few of them, as best as I can based on my decade living, meditating, and working in the country. From talking with Burmese friends and longtime expats, and involvement in Burma-based Dhamma projects. However, I'm well aware that nonetheless, I'm an outsider commenting on Burmese culture, and to share my thinking on this topic and this space is exposing my own vulnerability, which I think we all in some way do when talking about these sensitive topics. So before I go any further, I want to share something Yoni said during our talk that convinced me how vital and openness and honesty are if we want to try to learn together. To paraphrase, Yoni appreciated how our discussion was unfolding and observed that it couldn't happen in cultures that embraced a more indirect form of communication. Because regarding such a sensitive topic, progress is only possible through shared honesty and openness. For Yoni, this mirrored the tenuous dialogue now taking place in the US and how necessary that all is if we are to learn together. And now here in our own talk that follows, Yoni acknowledged how learning more about Burmese cultural perspectives allowed him to be more understanding and looking back and understanding this incident. So with those words from Yoni in mind, I want to share my understanding openly here. I'm mindful that I may harbor unexamined assumptions or biases in what follows, and if so, I apologize in advance if I'm inaccurate in how I describe these issues as a non-Burmese outsider. And I hope they do not derail listeners from the overall point we're trying to make and the important themes that Yoni's story brings to light. The first of these cross-cultural hurdles is that the open and direct style of conversation and confrontation itself is not really aligned with Burmese culture, where the norm of anabare often prevents a deeper understanding of discomfort. What is anabare? The noted Burmese author, Mathanagi, contributed the following definition to our Meditator's Guidebook project. She writes, quote, Feeling anade means feeling reluctant to take advantage of, or offend, or upset the other person, which means not saying no to an impossible request, or telling you what they think you want to hear, because doing otherwise would just be too rude. In the same way, they would agree with you even if they don't. End quote. So, in a nutshell, anabade encourages social harmony and avoids causing social shame and loss of face. As you'll hear in our discussion about Yoni's incident, I ran into this cultural hurdle in my own attempts at talking openly and critically about the incident with very close Burmese friends and was not totally successful. 
Another aspect of Burmese culture that is pertinent to Yoni's situation and its aftermath is that acknowledgments of unpleasant situations or incorrect behavior are usually avoided in Burmese culture, and especially not expressed in public. Besides favoring an indirect mode of communication and the importance of safeguarding one's own face and that of others, another factor is that critical reflection and social discourse in Myanmar have been actively suppressed for many years. This is due to the collective trauma wrought by decades under oppressive Burmese colonial rule and then a brutal dictatorship, which included the wanton dismantling of a once-proud educational system and which has only recently begun to change ever so slightly. Many Burmese came to learn that speaking openly in public was dangerous and that silence was safe. This is especially true when faced with an authority figure. Importantly, this is not only an external silence, but also an internalized one in which this avoidance and non-acknowledgement helped ensure personal safety in a society where it was not guaranteed. As I share in greater detail in my talk with Yoni, I experience this as a kind of collective avoidance of even acknowledging the existence of an unpleasant, challenging, or sensitive incident or situation, like a kind of cognitive dissonance to what was obviously taking place. To me it seemed as though, by not recognizing it, it's almost as if it doesn't exist. The problem then comes only if someone chooses to bring it to light. I found that this dynamic often prevented an open examination of, and even individual reflection on, problematic situations. With all this in mind, I recognize that some Burmese listeners may well feel discomfort from hearing Yoni's incident presented publicly, and may respond by charging that our conversation about it is the real problem. So hopefully you now have a somewhat better cultural context to understand the challenges inherent in Yoni's situation, as well as our conversation about it and making it public in this forum. So getting back to the variety of responses generated by Yoni's incident, an unfortunate response was offered by some of the monks and lay supporters associated with that monastery in trying to explain the assault on Yoni, namely that he did not look American. It's hard for me to decide what's more offensive here, the inference that the typical American is Caucasian or that the monk's aggression was inappropriate mainly because Yoni had an American passport which implies that if his behavior had been directed towards other non-American peoples, it would not have been an issue. Another group of responses to our earlier posting looked at Yoni's incident as a kind of one-off thing, meaning that this in no way implies widespread racism or discrimination against black Americans in Myanmar. This brought an added layer of examination to our discussion. When sharing this recently with a Burmese friend, she mentioned a current Burmese protest movement called Don't Call Me Kala, Kala is a somewhat derogatory word directed towards Muslims, as well as darker-skinned Hindus and Sikhs whose families hail from the subcontinent, but have long since settled in Myanmar. My friend connected Yoni's incident to this particular movement because, like him, some darker-skinned people in Myanmar who are ethnic Burmese, and therefore not Kala, may be mistakenly subject to the same discrimination. The Don't Call Me Kala response formed as a protest against this. Because discrimination is equally bad, whether intended or misdirected, in Yoni's case, it is irrelevant what the monk's assumption was when he assaulted him. Interestingly, as an aside, the Don't Call Me Kala movement primarily asserts that they do not belong in the discriminated against group and so are not deserving of ill treatment, rather than a protest against the prejudice itself. There was another kind of response from Burmese readers that I actually found quite helpful in further understanding the background on this incident. This centers on the idyllic pedestal that many Western meditators tend to place monks, putting them at the pinnacle of a Dhamma life, 
totally renouncing the world and living out their greater spiritual aspirations. My experience, however, has been that most Burmese don't share this idealized image, as they have had a lifetime of meeting monks of all dispositions and backgrounds. One person posted something I'd heard countless times, that behind closed doors, many Burmese know that not every single monk is living a life of exemplary discipline and practice, and that for this reason, it is quite important to carefully select which monastics one chooses to honor and to respect. Another made the observation that the Burmese monkhood simply reflects Burmese society. And interestingly, this observation mirrored our inaugural podcast episode in the Intersection of Dhamma and Race series, in which several Black American meditators had commented that it should be no surprise that the American mindfulness and Vipassana communities carry over the same discriminatory complexes as American society at large. As Yoni had never met a monk prior to his trip to the Golden Land, he had romanticized notions about the monkhood, so this long-term monk's behavior was doubly shocking and disturbing to him. At this point, I have to interject some personal feelings here. While it was obviously painful to Yoni that this incident happened and no one intervened, it was especially painful to me that no one associated with the monastery appeared to express shock, shame, or discomfort when I later spoke with them about the incident. I tried to remain on guard against any American conditioning about the kind of response Yoni's incident should elicit, but I found this lack of remorse very challenging. At a minimum, I wanted to hear something like, that was a wrong action and I'm really sorry it happened to him. But no such sentiment was ever expressed, either to Yoni or myself. In the online responses to the original essay, I was touched that some Burmese did offer a profound apology that a yogi on pilgrimage was treated this way at a monastery. However, many more put up similar roadblocks to avoid stating even this simple sentiment. But because the incident was so egregious, I simply couldn't understand how the only response wouldn't be expressing some degree of empathy. I talked about this with Zach, my podcast colleague and friend, as well as a close Burmese friend, and they both helped me to put into perspective the roadblocks that these comments reflected. They shared how some posters likely felt defensive and sensitive about foreigners commenting negatively about something that had to do with their country, implying that there was something wrong with their sangha, their culture, ethnic group, etc. So I want to explicitly acknowledge that while this discomfort and sensitivity will likely resurface again in response to the airing of this podcast episode, we do not, in any way, intend our conversation about this incident to be a critique of the sangha or Burmese culture. That said, I feel equally strongly in making this request to listeners. Please do not shut out Yoni's pain out of your own discomfort at hearing publicly how a Bamar monk acted poorly. But I also want to stress that the defensive responses to the preview article did not come only from a Burmese audience. They also came from Western readers, although they took different forms. Some criticized the entire topic as being not relevant and that it touched upon issues of politics and identity on a platform devoted to spiritual practice. My favorite response to this critique? One user, Max Tiford, wrote back, Since when does advocating for loving kindness towards oppressed people not align with the Dhamma? Finally, before I wrap up so that you could finally get on to listening to our full conversation, I want to address some online charges claiming that Yoni was exaggerating his story for dramatic effect and selfishly imposing his own needs onto a culture that had little contact with foreigners. I found these comments quite disturbing. And frankly, this blaming the victim and trying to discredit his story are nauseating to me. Let me just say that the incident happened over a year ago, and Yoni was not eager to share it publicly, nor is he active on social media. Yoni is a private person and would be much happier staying out of the limelight. 
He only agreed to go public with what happened in the hopes that a wider sharing of this incident could benefit everyone, monk and lay, Burmese and American, white and black. When I pointed Yoni to the cascade of reactions to the posted version, which he had not yet seen, he wrote, quote, talking about hot issues will generate hot reactions, yet I still think we did the right thing. Most of the comments and discussions were thought expanding. I love this. That alone made it worth it for me, end quote. So with that in mind, time for our conversation. All right. So with some of the other guests we've been hearing from on this episode, we've been hearing directly from them and their story and their experience. With this upcoming guest, I'm actually a part of his story. So this is a discussion that we're going to have where my voice is going to be involved because the story that's being told is something that I had some background and context and insight on. So we're conducting this interview a little bit differently from the others. So really happy that Yoni is here joining us. Thanks so much for agreeing to come on and talk about your experience. Oh, it's a pleasure, Joa. Yeah, so before we get into a particular experience that we want to describe in detail, let's hear just a little bit about your background. I know we're talking to you from Texas now. Is that where you're from? Originally, I am from Ethiopia. Uh, My parents uh, were from there, uh, but I grew up in California, Northern California. Um, San Jose and Santa Cruz. Uh, then we moved uh, to uh, Texas for grad school, and I've been here for about 10 years now. Okay, okay, great. And I know that you have a background in Vipassana meditation because that's how we met, but what I'm curious is how you came to that. The Dhamma came to me indirectly. I was in, in a bar in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and there was a guy there at that time at the hotel, and he's uh, telling me about this experience he had at a 10-day silent retreat and how much it helped him. And I heard about it and I put it in the back of my mind. And then again, another place in, um, in uh, I think, Arequipa, Peru or somewhere, where, again, when you travel, there's these uh, people that are outside the box that they would share with you what uh, they've experienced. And I heard about it again. So when I came back home, I Googled it and I said, Dhamma Center. And then the first thing that came up on Google was that. And then there was a movie that, they put out it was the Dhamma Brothers, and uh, I watched it. It was at that time, I think, on Netflix or YouTube or, or somewhere, and it just spoke to me and how much these people, that these prisoners that have been con- uh, convicted of murder and uh, are spending life in prison, how much the technique uh, helped them. And uh, I googled it, and there was one about an hour and a half away from where I live, about two hours away from where I live, and I signed up. I did not know uh, exactly what to entail. I showed up, I filled it up, and. I had a profound experience. It was hard. Uh, I got to know myself better. I, I just changed uh, and I, I got addicted to it. And so I went back. I've been practicing now for about seven years. So every year I would either um, you know, sit one course or serve another course. So I've been doing it consistently for about seven years now. Right, right. And how has that process been to you? Have you noticed some beneficial changes or inner improvements or insight through your practice? Absolutely. I would say it's one of the uh, most fortunate things that happened to me in a sense I was insecure and I was um, being honest about it. I had uh, depression and there was a lot of craving and wanting for my life to change uh, this way or that way. And so I wasn't I wasn't in peace at all. And I grew up as a, a Christian and, and um, on Sundays I would go to church and for about an hour or two, I would feel, uh, you know, the spirit of whatever that 
energies from uh, the people around me. But uh, Monday comes or Tuesday comes, uh, I still felt agitated. But I found this technique. And if you have, if since I practice it daily, I do notice a tremendous difference in my in my dealings with people and my uh, dealings with myself, just in general, general peace and happiness. So for me, it worked personally. So uh, that's as far as I would go. Yeah, that, that's great. And so you, you seem like a traveler. You mentioned learning about Dhamma in South America. And of course, we met in Burma and we'll get into that story in a moment. But um, what brought you to that part of the world? Burma. Uh, so in Vipassana, the Goenkaji uh, talks about uh, how he got the technique, the land of gold, the land of Dhamma. So he, he put that seed in my mind right on my first sit, I think it was 2013. So and how much he revered and how much he uh, respected Ubakin, how much he wanted to pay respect for him. So in the back of my mind, since I got this great gift, I wanted to go back to Sansanga and give thanks to them. So in a way, I wanted to experience uh, the place that gave me this gift. So I went to um, Burma for that purpose. And how long were you there? About a month. 28 days or so. Right, right. So this is where our interaction comes. And this is one of the, the main experiences we want to talk about in this interview, what what transpired here. So to give some background from my side, uh, I've been in Myanmar since 2007. And in addition to some of this Dhamma work that we do with podcasts and blog and essay and other things, my wife and I live next to a monastery in which we spoke to the Sayada there, the abbot, and we gained permission to have access to four rooms at the monastery, which we can completely furnish. The idea being that when, when meditators, yogis, monastics, when they come to Burma, maybe they're, they're living in Burma permanently or for an extended period and they have to come to Yangon for business, it's so much nicer to be able to stay in a Dhammic environment of a monastery than a hotel where Sheila might not be followed and um, there's more of a commercial vibe. You have a, a day of touring pagodas or monasteries or sitting, then you come back to that. Uh, in addition to, frankly, saving money for the, the meditator, money that could be spent on, 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 on dana for a monastery or for more experience of their, uh, their, their meditation practice, we know that many of the Western practitioners who come to Myanmar a lot of them don't necessarily have a whole lot of money because they're not working regular jobs. They're, they're prioritizing spiritual practice over their careers. And so they're, even though they've gone halfway around the world, their money's quite, quite tight. So it kind of serves all these purposes. And we gained permission from the Sayada to do a number of things. One, to furnish these rooms. So we have two female rooms and two male rooms. And to reserve these rooms only for... Uh, foreign practitioners that are passing through because it's a very big monastery. It was built with a lot of dana and there's a lot of room and there's a lot of halls and rooms and bedrooms that aren't being used. So in Myanmar, it's considered really, really meritorious on the Burmese side to be able to share the Dhamma with foreigners. It's this kind of, on their side, it's a sign of like great merit and great karma that this foreign practitioner, if, you, if you're born in, if you're a born Buddhist in Myanmar, then you have so many opportunities to access the Buddhist teachings and meditation. And they realize this. But if you're coming from a non-Buddhist country halfway across the world, you don't have the same opportunities to be able to find this path. And those that come are seen as having really great parmies to, for, for being able to, to practice this way. And so coming to a monastery where... Uh, where you're able to practice in Myanmar, it's great merit for the supporters and the monks of that monastery. So it was really a win, 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 win situation, a win for us in being able to provide it, 
a win for the monastery and being able to offer it. And they felt really happy that they could serve foreign practitioners there and a win for the meditators that are maybe traveling on a shoestring and not wanting to go into a commercial environment. So that's some background on what we've done. And we've, we've been able to furnish them in a way that uh, it's individual accommodations. It's um, probably a little bit more, more comfortable and uh, clean than, than, than the typical monastery. And so the idea was that it would give people a chance to recharge and have some private time before their pilgrimage or course or after or whatnot. So that's some background on what we were doing and, and why we were doing it. And we've had a stream of meditators come through, some that have been very good friends, some that have. Actually, I should back up a minute and say why we set this up. We had a, a Dutch monk friend, uh, Uaga, who's been in robes about a decade. And when he would come to see us, he would stay at a monastery that was in such decrepit shape near nearby our house that, you know, the floorboards were falling apart and there were there were dangerous dogs, like a pack of dogs that were guarding the room. And um, and we just felt really sad that this monk that was coming to see us was in those kind of conditions. And so we started to brainstorm where how we could set up an environment for him and, and others like him that would be more comfortable and went down a number of roads discovering that eventually we landed with with these four rooms and this this very positive relationship with the Sayada there and, and providing them. And once those were set up, we, we realized, well, it doesn't just have to be the people we know. It could also be the, the, the friends of friends, you know, let, let the word spread. We, we get merit by being able to bring this. And it's, it's really a joy to see people that are coming to the country for the first time. I was like that when I came in 2003 for the first time. And, and, uh, and things are so confusing and, and there's so much possibility, but it's hard to know where to go and how to manage that. To have a, a domic environment you can stay in that's comfortable, that you're welcomed is I know how that would feel for me back then. So it's really, really fun to be able to provide that for others. So that's that's the background of how we set that up. And then once that was there, we realized, well, this doesn't have to be just our friends or our, our friends of friends. This can be complete strangers, people that are just on the, the, the path. So we started to get the word out. This is we have this monastery here and we, we did have a vetting process. It wasn't very serious of you know denying people, but we wanted some kind of roadblock because we knew that it would take it would just take one meditator acting incorrectly that would put everything at risk, including including ourselves, because Myanmar is a very um, close-knit society and ethical behavior is uh, in, a, in a conservative tr traditional background is very important. So we were very careful with uh, not just allowing any Joe meditator to, um, to just pop by and make sure there was a level of, of seriousness and and commitment and no one ever got denied, but we just had a couple kind of application forms so that uh, if someone came, they, they would put a little bit of work in to show that they, they were coming for the right intention. So we started to have people coming and stay at this room that we, we had never met before, that we might have had some friends we knew about or just as word started to spread. Kind of counterintuitively, Yangon is the hardest place for a meditator or even a monastic to be able to stay in a monastery you, you know, 10 times or a hundred times more likely to stay at a village monastery where there's only one monastery in the town than you are finding a monastery in all of the big city. It's, it's just uh, the way it is. So it was wonderful to be able to provide this service. And we were having meditators come that we, we didn't have any real personal connection with, but we were just, uh, we were able to provide the room and, and get to meet them and, and help them sometimes help them out with their journey or their pilgrimage from, from what we knew of being there. And that brings us up to the point of your visit and your stay. And we did not know each other personally be before you came. And 
I was actually out of the country when you arrived. Uh, and when that was the case, I would communicate with my assistant uh, who's Burmese and is actually a former monk and former monastery attendant. So, so very much attentive to, to that and would communicate to him about the, the needs of the incoming meditators and getting them settled and such. And from there, let's turn the story over to you and your arrival in Burma and entry into the monastery. Uh, yeah, I do remember the serious uh, vetting process. It wasn't that serious, but it was about a, a page or two of form and we fill it out and, and you got back to me right away. So I was very pleased to uh, be able to stay. So I uh, arrived maybe three days or two days before in Yangon. And um, I think you had to take a bus. I took a bus that wasn't that far away from uh, my hotel. Uh, I took a bus and then there was a stop and your assistant picked me up and uh, showed me the room. It was a really nice room. Um, and this is where I was staying. There was a couple of monks that were stationed uh, or uh, that were my neighbors, which were really kind uh, senior monks that are doing this for maybe 30 days or 45 days, but still very kind. We, uh, we got to talking and uh, we we hit it off. And basically that's uh, my first day in that monastery. But I did hear about it. Uh, let me go back. I heard about it in, uh, uh, in Facebook and a few friends of mine and um, know a few. So uh, they, uh, you're 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 known to us. So we uh, basically, uh, I basically contacted you through Facebook, and then you um, reached back, and I was able to uh, to stay at the monastery. Right, right. So we're getting to the incident of note that that we want to get into in a little more detail. At the time that you were staying in the monastery, we were this was all kind of an experiment on our end. So we were kind of working out, you know, what time does the monastery gates close so that they they don't get locked out and uh, what, when is breakfast and lunch and how do we work out some of these other details? And if they want to go to a pagoda, do we, do we know a, a local taxi driver that will give them a fair rate and, and take them around? And, and one of the details we were working out was, uh, was food. And at that point that you were staying there, things change later and we'll get into that. But when, when you were staying there, you were, um, in my understanding, you were having breakfast and lunch there. And there was a particular incident at one of the lunches that we'll go into more detail about what happened. Yeah. Uh, do you want me to go into it or? Uh, you, uh, sure. I, I can, sure. Okay. So basically, I was uh, I was there on my fourth day or some uh, fifth day or one of those days. Um, and every morning at six or five, some uh, five uh, forty five or something, I would get up. They will have breakfast. And there's these circular tables on the floor where the food comes. So I sat by the door, which are the younger, the younger monks are the ones where they, they sit. And as you got closer to the wall, the older and the more senior monks sit uh, in a certain table. So I, I knew right then and there, I don't, I'm not worthy of being near the senior monks. So I, I stayed back uh, by the door. So there's the seats filled three days in. We have, uh, they'll have breakfast. I'll have uh, breakfast with them. Uh, you, from far away, I'd smile at the people that were in my floor, the monks that were in my floor. They'll smile back. It was just uh, an ordinary, uh, non-English. Nobody spoke English. So you uh, basically, we had breakfast and I would go upstairs and meditate by myself all day. I really didn't have to leave the, the uh, monastery because I just came uh, at that place to meditate a couple of times before I went to um, other parts of the country. So day four comes and there's there's a switch between the senior monks there's a lot of faces that i didn't i don't recognize from the first couple of days but uh, they're there they're sitting around and i'm sitting and i'm about to be served uh, on the floor and unknowingly this man that i i'm my face is facing the wall the guy the guy walks in he stops looks at me and kicks me on the shoulder 
and it's just it was a complete shock at first uh, because there was nobody there to tell me what's going on. There was nobody there to be like, oh, stop. Uh, or there was, it was just, I was shocked for the, when, on the first kick. So what happened here for, for, with the shock was I knew, say what you want about it, but most of the monks are, have multiple black belts in some form of uh, martial arts. I knew for a fact a couple of those that were in my floor when they worked out. And a few of them that spoke a little bit of English would say, oh, three black belts or something. So I knew then that there's nothing that I could do to defend myself, but just smile. And then um, the second time I'm sitting on the floor, he, he kicked me on my behind and I just couldn't believe it. Uh, why are you kicking me? Is what I said straight up. Why, why, why are you kicking me? Why are you doing this? And there's no English. So there's this tension. I can feel it. And I've learned through my sits and my meditations, try to get back to observing sensations, observing sensations. And I can see, I can feel the, the anger rising. But another one, I think a uh, scene is he's he's a monk that has been there for a long time, comes in and speaks to them or something. And then apparently I'm not supposed to be there. I'm not supposed to be served food. Uh, I must come back and eat with the people that are not monks or something. So I'm a bit agitated. So I, uh, I, I go back to my room. I try to sit for 15, 20 minutes. And then I message you saying, hey, this just happened. What's going on? Uh, I, 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 I just straight up told you this is not something that should be done here. And right away, you got back to me, honestly, saying, oh, I'll deal with it. I don't know what's going on. I, I, I will uh, take care of it for you. And, uh, and you mentioned the fact that because I'm dark skinned, because I'm black and they don't really get black people, uh, so to say, to stay there. They might have thought that I was something else uh, with the Buddhists and the Muslims. Uh, I'm, I'm really not well aware of it. But there's uh, some regions there that are predominantly dark-skinned, uh, b- but they're Muslim. So he might have thought I was Muslim, and I can sense there is this tension in that country between the Muslims and the Christians. So uh, that was my understanding. So that afternoon comes, I uh, didn't even want to eat at the monastery at that, that day. So I just uh, there was a really nice restaurant. Your assistant took me uh, the first day that I came in. So I just walked there, and I had my lunch. And that after having lunch, I just decided it would be best for me. I think I got some more messages from you from Facebook uh, that you were handling. And there's going to be some meetings uh, with me, uh, uh, with uh, the senior monks there about what was going on. And uh, what happened after was I decided maybe it's better for me to go somewhere else. So I uh, I came back and spoke to your assistants. There were some neighbors there that were really kind. Uh, I can just, I don't, we don't speak English, but I can feel their metta. Uh, I don't know his name. I think I took a picture with him and I might have sent you the picture, but it was a very kind man. He, his metta calmed me down a bit. Uh, but I told his kid, I think, to buy me a ticket to the ancient city. What, what, what was the ancient city name? I forgot the name. Oh. Bagan? Yes, Bagan. So I got a ticket to Bagan. That afternoon, late afternoon, I had a meeting with one of the most senior ones. Uh, he looked to be in his 70s. And a couple of the, the people, uh, we, we were going to go have a meeting and I told them that I was going to leave. This shouldn't be the way somebody that has been meditating for years to treat another human being. You just don't. What, what is the point of sitting for years and years if you don't have the basic compassion? It's just ABC of compassion. So I, I uh, said, I'm going to leave. And um, I don't think the Burmese are very direct. They're very docile. Um, They're, we Americans we get to the point very very quickly. Right. Yes. So they're taken back by my directness. But I, I'm doing it out of meta, completely from my heart. I was like, hey, this is all coming from love. I love this country. But right now, I don't feel comfortable here. I'm going to, to, to leave. 
I got the ticket and we went to, to have a meeting with the senior, uh, or uh, I'm not sure what he's, there's no English. Nobody spoke English except your assistant. He was coming in a little later. While we were walking with the senior monk to the office, there were these dogs in the monastery and one of the dogs were under a car. And I remember this specifically. We were walking there and this senior monk used his giant stick to hit the dog. And right then I just, I just in, inside. I just felt this is this is insane. What is the point of practicing for 30, 40 years if you cannot have basic compassion for a dog? And I, I love dogs. It just I, I I was going to Burma to shave my hair, do the whole uh, monk experience uh, right there and right then. I just completely changed my trajectory uh, of what I thought about monks. Uh, they're just humans. They're just like us. I before then I would revere them. I would fantasize about them. I would put them in this pedestal but when i saw that action by that senior say what what you want to about it but for me i i just it doesn't matter what happened to me when i saw what happened to that dog yes there are a lot of dogs in emr and some of them are dangerous but if it's a dog in a monastery i'm sure you know of this dog so hitting it, it just didn't speak with me i paid my respect i didn't say anything negative i didn't leave anything i don't want to leave anything negative because again i am the first black guy that came in there I do not want to be uh, their first impression. I do not want it to be, uh, oh, the next time they see some other guy, me, this is what they expect. So I, I actually gave some dana saying, thank you for what you've done for me. I bowed, uh, paid my respect, bowed to the Sayadu. And that evening, uh, maybe uh, 4 p.m. or so, you know, that neighbor came and got a taxi for me for a really good deal, took me to town. And on the night bus, I went to Bagan. Right, right. Wow. Wow. Thanks for, for sharing all that and bringing that all up. And I'll share from my side. I remember the message. I was out of the country when the message came in. I it, it took some time to to kind of get a clear picture of what happened. I think the news came somewhat in stages, and as it became clear what had actually happened, that on my side, the shock, the horror, the anger, the shame, kind of all all set in. And then the next stage went to like fact finding. Like let me let me try to find out what happened. And I spoke to my neighbor and assistant. And talk to them, and and we we've never really been able to piece together exactly what happened. But the clearest picture that's come is that the monk who committed the assault was was not at the monastery on a regular basis. He had just kind of stopped by there from somewhere else, and it might have been indicated that he wasn't quite right in the head. That there was there was something else going on with whatever he was dealing with mentally. And that he had not been informed that a foreigner was staying at the monastery and regular eating there. And it was and it was told to me kind of as a matter of fact, uh, well, he just wasn't informed of this. And it was just kind of an oversight. And if he had known, then, then this wouldn't have happened. To me, of course, that wasn't good enough uh, because I, I kind of kept pushing and, and said, well, are you saying that because he hadn't been told that that the kicking was an appropriate response? And being a Westerner and being someone who was very sensitive to how uh, how you interact with different races and backgrounds and ethnicities, discrimination, et cetera, something much more was needed. And part of that was a statement of it really not being acceptable. As you say, Myanmar is not a, and a lot of Asia is not a, a direct society, direct culture, more indirect and subtle. And so there's not a background in being able to investigate cross-cultural encounters that might go awry and that might have different understanding. It's not a culture of uh, deep, sincere apologies and reconciliation and talking. And so even being there as long as I've been and understanding that there was and knowing that that's not an outcome really that you can expect very easily in this culture, very traditional in a monastery, no less. 
on my part, there was still this sense of, um, of outrage and shame that something really terrible had happened and, and that there it needed to be rectified in some way, even though that wasn't really to happen in that culture. In any case, during that day, as I tried to get more sense of what happened from you, from my assistant, from my neighbor, and and piece this all together, that was as close as we came, that he simply hadn't been told and that it was, uh, he didn't know why this person was there and he was just responding in that way. And as we talked about it more, I remember, obviously you had a whole host of emotions from that incident of anger and confusion, pain, shame, whatever else was inside you. And I remember one of the reactions you had that you were so confused about was that no one did anything, that this incident happened and that there wasn't any response from anyone else. And I remember kind of smiling at that and saying, well, this is something I can't explain. Like, I don't know why this monk did that, but I know enough about Burmese culture to know that when someone senior acts in a certain way, it's not a, a confrontational society. It's not, it's not a, uh, you don't really stand up and differentiate yourself and your, your whole career, your whole community can really be jeopardized by doing that. It's really, you really just kind of stay to the back, especially when you're talking about a, a military dictatorship where, where there was enormous suppression and violent reaction for those who did. So that certainly seeps into the psychology. So I think on your side, there was a pain and a, understandably that first of all, this happened. And second of all, there was just a muted reaction after it that nothing took place. No one came to your defense. And that was something I had a little bit of understanding about Burmese culture. This was never said to me. This was purely my conjecture that because when this happened, it was obvious to me that this would be very, very unlikely to happen to a white meditator. I don't want to say impossible because we don't know the motivations of the monk doing it very, very unlikely that this this would occur. And so it seemed that there was some connection to your skin color. And there's not really an understanding of the African-American experience in, in Myanmar, but there is tension with Muslims. And so if your features were wrongly interpreted as being Muslim, the monk could have been responding to, you know, get these people out of our monastery when we're trying to eat with our monks. And so it could have been a misdirected discrimination, although misdirected in terms of who he thought you were, it was not misdirected in terms of skin color. And so as we're having this this current series about the intersection of of race and Dhamma and, and all the other podcasts are looking at the American experience, even though primarily we're a Burma Dhamma podcast, we're, we're expanding our, our look here. This is one story where we are talking about race and Dhamma purely in a Burmese experience. Even if it's, it's a, a misdirected reaction to it, it's still a consequence that you faced that a white counterpart might not. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. In a sense, I remember... In Burma, there's this game. It's uh, like hockey ball. What do you remember what they call it? Chinlun. Chinlun. So I played Chinlun with these kids, uh, with these monks, with these twenty-something uh, monks, of uh, three days in a row. And uh, we have this connection where we don't speak the language, but we can make each other laugh by just eye contact and uh, repeating each other words. Or uh, you know, there's this connection. And I remember having that breakfast that fourth morning, and I'm sitting around these guys that I played this Chinlun with. And when this happened, they all just looked, they, they acted like they didn't know me in a way. Right. That itself was a shock. Right. I just smiled at you and wished you a good morning and you smiled back. But when this happened, it was just, whoop, face was completely switched off. So 
I don't know exactly if it's because of my color of skin or uh, because I might look Muslim or not. We can never really know what's going on with this monk's mind. But I could tell you, I've traveled, like you said, extensively in 40 plus countries. And I can tell you there's a lot more of this. The darker you are, the more likely there's going to be more issues around you. It's not just an American issue. Right, right. Even South Africa, Tanzania, any, any the continent itself, the darker you are, there's a certain burden that comes with it. So I don't know how to recognize it at that moment. I don't know what to say about it because I do my best and I pride myself in trying not to say or be a person that's a victim. I don't want to have that victim mentality. It's conditioned to me early on. It's given to me early on by uh, this or that or this entertainment or this, that, uh, this Freudian psychology or this or that. So I'm I'm doing intentionally my best not to play the victim card. But there are times where you see this pattern and rhythm in some things. You're just like, oh, what did I do in the past life? I'm not even sure if I believe in it. Right. You can see it happening more often than if. And I have a lot of great, good white friends that don't experience the same thing as I experienced it. And part of me, because I've been in this technique for a bit, is it my own karma? Is Am I... Am I to, uh, the cause of this from others, even though I'm wishing them metta? It's just a huge jiu-jitsu in my head that goes around. I'm being really open with you in my mind uh, when I am dealing with these things, these things that I can't explain. It's a uh, conundrum. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I do want to go back to what you said about the monk's reaction. And that that is not an abnormal or unusual experience in Burmese culture. I've witnessed it on several occasions and I was, it was one of the strangest things that I ever experienced when it happened of a kind of absolute paralysis and shutdown. Like, a, like, a, I don't, I don't know if this is what you experienced. I'll describe for mine and you could tell me if it's similar, almost like there was a couple incidences I experienced where very strange and inappropriate things happened and everyone in the room completely shut down every aspect of their senses where it was almost like time had stopped and their their essential being and essence had gone to some deep recess that they weren't even conscious of. And I was the only one cognizant of the inappropriate thing taking place. That's the wrong way to say it. I was the only one cognizant that life was taking place. It wasn't that I was ignoring something. It wasn't they were ignoring something inappropriate. It was that they had disappeared completely and I've never experienced anything like it. And I, and I have experienced that on several occasions. And when the inappropriate incident past, they all arose again and it was never talked about again. And I think there have been extraordinarily inappropriate and violent and damaging and traumatic experiences that have happened in, in the past you know, 70 years of Burmese history. And it's been something of a coping and survival mechanism to retreat at moments of potential trauma. And that I think that could have been what happened to that moment. And furthermore, after the moment passes, whether you're involved or not, because I shared this incident with two very close Burmese Dhammic friends with my sense of shame and outrage and frustration, and they couldn't really respond in the way that, that I had hoped. And these are saintly people. These are people living a life of service, following the precepts, meditating constantly. Good, good, good-hearted people. And Yet, and you know, we know about spiritual bypass. We're talking a lot about it on this series of being able to follow. We've talked a lot about it in an American context of following a certain kind of spiritual practice that is actually bypassing things you don't want to get at because they're too painful. 
And somehow in their cultural way, there was not able to be a conversation uh, that was just being able to say, wow, that was wrong and that should not happen. We weren't able to get at that point. It was just a lot of obfuscating. You know, I did talk about it with a number of my my Western Dhamma friends, not a number of, I have uh, three or four uh, Western Dhamma friends, including Zach Hessler, who's the co-host on the podcast. And to three or four of them, we talk about a lot of things that go on in Myanmar and um, our experiences, our insights. And when this happened, I shared with three or four of them what had happened and my reaction to it. And, you know, in that context, European and American practitioners, monks, meditators in Burma, it was a reaction of complete shock and shame. And yeah, just just complete shock and shame and, and wanting to rectify it. You know, there was a German monk who, upon hearing it, pleaded to be able to talk to you and to, to remember that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Let me apologize on behalf of what happened and just being someone who had committed his life to the robes and knowing this had happened to someone who was wearing those robes and the stain that that caused. He just hearing about it. He just had this visceral sense of yeah. complicity yeah. and shame. I, I think he tried to contact me, but I was in the uh, other side of the country. I didn't meet up with him, but I can see and feel the, his sincerity from the writing he, uh, he, he wrote to me. I, uh, I appreciated it. But the thing about being black at times is you have to move on quickly. You have to not look back at certain situations and say, hey, let's just move forward. Uh, and you have to do this over and over and over again. Not to, it's, it could be out of fear because I don't really want to look back at uh, trauma. But also, it's something you have to cultivate. It's something you have to cultivate to have this kind of defense where you face it. To make this the best day I can. And uh, you try again and again and again. So you try again and again and again. So you, you have to move forward. Yeah, yeah. And I also want to come back to you had mentioned, you mentioned just now, and you talked to me about it uh, when it happened. I think you had done some more processing in how you mentioned it just recently from because a lot more time had elapsed. But when it happened, I remember you did understandably have shock that a monk would do this of all people. I mean, here is a dedicated Vipassana meditator who only knows about Dhammic Burma and the monkhood from the stories he hears in the depth of an intensive retreat and the the mindset you have of someone that would commit to a life like that. And just the shock and the incomprehension of someone that you hold on that level doing something so abominable. On one hand, I, I think that it is fair to not put monks on a pedestal. They are people. They're working out their own stuff as the rest of all of us are. And when you look at the Burmese monkhood, it's... um. You know, it's another story entirely. There's a lot of reasons that people become monks and not all of them are purely Dhammic. And that's a that's a, a whole other podcast to go into is uh, uh, who joins the order and how are they expected to behave and what are the different ways to to be a monk and the different kinds of, of ways you can structure your life and, and the diversity among that and the choices that you have and the monks that you really have tremendous respect for and the monks that you have less. So in some sense, that that is a truism that any meditator who spends some time you start to realize that monks are human, and yet the discipline they try to live under is something special at the same time, and that's a deeper topic. However, I'm also really troubled and, and saddened that you came with an aspiration for ordination, which is one of the, the most special and unique spiritual renunciations you can have on the path, and that even if some monks might hold the robes in a different way, one can ordain and structure one's spiritual life and have 
support from those around you to live without money and live without a care for food and live without a need for material possessions and only strive for spiritual practice. And this is one of the few societies in the world today where everyone will support you, everyone will applaud you, everyone will cheer for you. And the poorest of the poor will be the first ones that will come to try to give you what you need. So there's this incredible moment of generosity and support that exists there, even though monks that are wearing the robes aren't perfect and some are far less than perfect. And to hear that you you had an experience that knocked monks off their pedestals, well, that's one thing. And that's and the way it happened was was really unfortunate. But that is something that that a lot of us come to in, in less dramatic ways. But to hear as I did now, which I didn't know before, that this experience was such understandably that impeded your your thought of ordination and the noble aspiration that you had, that is just really, really sad. That that brings a new layer of of sadness and pain to me now in hearing that. And I think that I venture to say that Burmese and meditators listening to this podcast now, should you come back and want to find a place to ordain, that you will have no shortage of supporters to make that possible. That's uh, really uh, good to hear, Joa. I appreciate invite and uh, sincere apologies for what happened. And I'll take it if it's uh, on the path and if there's another opportunity to do it, I will definitely look into it. But at that time, you know, uh, there's this thing where when you're the first of something, uh, I've seen a lot of shaven head monks that gave up and joined the Sangha, and most of them are European or Asian descent. So I've never actually seen a black person do it. So I thought, hey, it's only Burma where you can do it for a month or two. Uh, and I can try what it feels. And if it's for me, maybe I'll continue to do it. And for people that don't see my picture, I have dreadlocks and I've had it for over 10 years. And I'm not kidding you uh, when I say this, Joe. I, uh, <laughs> I, the only place that I would th- I thought I would cut my dreadlocks was in it means a lot to a lot of black men. Dreadlocks symbolize uh, the dread they feel in the world. So it means a lot to them. So I would shave it off in Burma and bury it there to pay respect to this land. What I fantasized in my head when I came there, uh, and I'm every day I'm grateful for what Goinka has given me this technique. So for me, this was something that uh, is personal. So I thought I would do that. But when I experienced that in Burma, uh, and if it came from a monk, let alone uh, random strangers, and when I saw what happened to that dog, for me, the dog was the one that just sealed the deal. And yes, uh, a lot of other countries uh, in India and, and Vietnam, they don't really have the same connection that we have with animals. Uh, when I saw that, I just said, whoop, this is not for me. I'm out of here. It completely uh, shut me off. I don't know if that would change. Uh, I don't know if I would go in Dhamma to know that it's the path for me to, to go back and uh, do it again. But it, it is something that is bound to happen to one form or another. If, if it's not your path, you will get a signal from life. And maybe for me, that was a signal. I was like, oh, oh that's not the path for me. But I'm not saying it shouldn't be a path for other black men or other, or maybe even me in the next uh, couple of years. But for now, oh, uh, boy, <laughs> I would say it's, um, it's, it's a lot easier to do it, uh, to be a Sangha with Goinka where it's secluded and everything is provided for you and, um, and there's a lot more Westerns and you feel like you can uh, connect with the, and you can speak the, the language with the sanghas that you uh, have around you. Where I'm going with this, and I'm sorry if, if it's disappointing you, Joa, but 
I, I just like uh, want to be honest about it. No, no, that's what we want here is the honesty. I'm just hanging on your every word. And, you know, I, I think it's your experience and that's your truth. And my truth is that, you know, we didn't really recover from this either in our own way. We, we had gone into these monastery rooms with maybe a sense of naivete that this was just a good thing we were doing in the world and a sense of joy that we were providing it. And to have something like this happen that was so far from our intention and um, even though, of course, we weren't involved or responsible, but that it was it was kind of something under our watch, um, even if we couldn't control it, it was something that that was in our domain. It was this deep sense of shame. And it was, I'd say, a double shame. One is shame that it happened in Burma. And I think that that's the sense of shame that like the German monk felt and some of the others then in my Dhamma friends that I spoke to that had a connection with Burma just felt a sense of of shame that someone that was so dedicated to the path would have this happen to them. And then a shame, a certain shame on top of it, that, that this was supposed to be a place of refuge and practice that, that was just pure giving. That was just us wanting to give and to be, to be happy in giving in the way that Burmese are, you know, they're the most generous people in the world from my experience and people with, with very little will give um, what little they have. And going forward, it was, it was painful to have to be sensitive to who was coming not sensitive, not in terms of who was allowed to come, but sensitive that uh, if someone didn't look a certain way, that that something could happen. And not that this was a, a special monastery or that they allowed certain... We were talking about wider Burmese culture and monkhood. And there was an incident where a very, very dedicated Indian from East India country meditator came and stayed and there was a large festival going on. And then also just so full of, of excitement and joy of where he was. And I just had this kernel of fear in my mind that one crazy person in this big festival taking place, this big Buddhist festival taking place at the monastery, would see this Indian meditator as a non-Buddhist and draw conclusions. And I, I had to tell him, like, look, this happened before, and I just want you to be aware that this happened. I can't wow. not tell you this. It's not ethical on my part to not tell you that this thing happened and because of the way you look that something might happen here and i found i ended up finding a indian burmese family that were donors at the monastery and connecting them and then having them him kind of under the wing but it kind of forever changed the feeling of safety that that you can just bring anyone serious and earnest into into the fold and they would be taken care of that because something like this happened, even, you know, whatever the percentage is that the likelihood of this happening or it happening again, it was kind of on my watch and it, and it left really a deep pain in, um, in the fact that this could and did happen. And also further awoken me, further, further uh, clarified in me the experiences of someone who looks different and being judged by those differences. They weren't not being judged by everyone, certainly the saintly Dhammic people like my assistant or our neighbor saw beyond that. And many people did, but that some people don't. And that this probably would not have been an experience that would have happened to me or someone who looks like me was really disturbing. I, I want to say this is what is great about this discussion that we are having in America and all over the world about Black Lives Matter. It is this that I want. It is this to be able to talk about it so that we can have a, a proper way of dealing with situations when they rise uh, up. So this thing's uh, in Burmese culture where they don't talk about these kind of things, where they don't, they don't approach it directly. The progress that me and you just made in the last hour would not 
would not happen because it's just ignored. And I think for me personally, one of the greatest things this younger generation is doing is they're just bringing out all these things that we have been putting under the table, putting under the carpet, and they, they're just bringing it out so that we can talk about it with compassion and kindness and see how we can grow from it. And just having you telling me what's going on at the Burm what you know about the Burmese culture and how they uh, see things prepares me for the next time that I go to Burma and sit and I could be more understanding of the way they look at situations where they have been the, under the dictatorship for 70 years now, you said, and the way they think their psyche is different. So I would have more compassion for their way of looking at things because we are able to talk about it like we did today. And I'm really excited about what the young generation is bringing up and what they're going to do. They did, they did more in the last three months than what my generation did in 10 years or the previous mm -hmm. generations did in 50, 60, 70 years. So I'm, 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 I'm excited. I'm so glad to be alive so that I can experience these sankaras, these uh, karmic things that we've been hiding under so we can bring them out and deal with them face them because it's it's the key here we just need to make sure we're calm about it and we're not going to be hateful about it but face them so that we can progress uh, as, a, as a human race right right well said and you know i also want to say that i we don't want to blanket anyone we don't want to generalize any anyone whites or blacks or burmese or monks or anyone and I want to emphasize that I am sure that there are Burmese listening to this who have the same sense of horror and anger and shame of, of what happened. And, and I hope those Burmese that are listening, you know, that are, are more modern thinking and more exposed to different ideas, will write in in some way, publicly or privately, to, to be able to express that. And that just as we have in America, traditional traditionalist and maybe somewhat repressed views, not to the degree of a, of a military dictatorship, but... In some sense, there's things that are being talked about now that weren't before. So also, that's a process going on there. And there are a, a more modern, younger generation of Burmese that are dealing with this head on and that are, are taking up the idea of Black Lives Matter and how it relates to treatment of minorities in Myanmar. And this is also, you know, we, we don't do, we obviously don't do everything right in America. One thing that I think I think we try to do things right sometimes. And in my travels, that's that's something I appreciate. And one of the things I think at least some people try to do right is to to be able to talk about the way we want things to be and to point out when things are not that way. And there's there's a couple of anecdotes I want to describe with that. So I had an experience talking to a European meditator in, in Myanmar about, I can't remember exactly what it was. It might've been, it was some situation with, with minorities. It might've been a, a, a black or a Mexican meditator that was, that was in Myanmar and some sensitivity I had with it. And he kind of admonished me that, you know, well, you Americans, you take all of this so sensitively and you're so, you're just, you're just so aware and so hypersensitive of all these issues. And almost kind of like I was manifesting a problem by my my awareness and sensitivity that to, to all of this. Wow. And it reminded me of the current problems going on in Europe with when you look at sports and I, I don't know how much you've followed this or heard the news, but like over the past many years in certain Belgium or Italian or Spanish leagues, the treatment of black players, black soccer players, um, you know, throwing bananas on the field at them or just abhorrent behavior. And there's not the background that you find more widespread in America to be able to talk about these issues and speaking from personal experience, so my background is Jewish. And when I was in college, I studied abroad in Paris. And 
there was this incident where I was, uh, I was with a, actually, let, let me back up. There's two things I want to share. I used to go to this, uh, this was before the age of, uh, of Wi-Fi and smartphones and everything else. So I would go once in a while to this cyber cafe to check my email. And we became, me and my friends became really close with the owner of the, the, the French owner of the cyber cafe. And one time we went there and he said some, some derogatory comment about Jews. I don't, I don't even think I was there. I think my friend who was Jewish told me about it. So I thought about what do I do? You know, how do I respond to this? And what's the appropriate action to this anti-Semitic comment? And I decided I'm going to go one more time. I'm going to use the internet there. And then when I finish using the internet, I'm going to gently confront him and tell him that I can't continue to do business at a place where these kinds of comments are made. And I'll gauge his response and see what he says. So um, I was speaking my limited French at that time. This was a long time ago. So who knows how well it came off. But that was my intention. And his reaction to this was similar to the reaction I got in Myanmar from, from this European friend, which was, you Americans, you take everything so sensitively and really angry at me, really like, I didn't mean that. And this is your problem. This isn't something I'm giving and I was young and impressionable at the time. I was in college. I didn't really know what to make of this. And so a couple of weeks later, this is what I was about to tell. And I, I realized I was getting my story out of order. I happened to be, I was walking around the Marais in, in Paris with another Jewish friend, just coincidentally. And we saw this rabbi just walking down the street. We we're, oh my God, like, like, look at them. We told them we're Jewish and, you know, had this conversation. It was Shabbat. And he invited us to a Shabbat meal, which is like, for those that don't know, this is like a Friday meal where you, if you were in the religion, and I come from a very secular family, but if you're religious, you have this big feast and you invite all the Jews that you meet that you know and don't know. And so we had this wonderful meal with Jews from all over the world that were there. So during the meal, I asked this question to the assembled audience. I said, you know, I had this incident happen to me and it was painful to me, but the response I got was that this was not a Jewish problem. This was not a French problem. This was an American problem. This was that my heightened sensitivity to an apparent slight was because I just took things too personally and asked this assembly of, of mainly European and French Jews, like, was this my problem? And you can imagine the answer that came back, you know, which was no, like, like you just like you, you Americans just have more background in being able to deal with it and talk about it. And so I think this plays into the incident you had there that in the Burmese culture, there wasn't this sensitivity in being able to, to, to talk, even with some of my closest friends and people that, that were just saintly people and being able to talk and process about the harm that happened. And there could even be people listening that are thinking, like, you guys, like this one thing happened and like, was how bad was he harmed? Did he have to go to the hospital? And you know, you're over it. And there could be a pushback from, um, you know, you guys are taking it too sensitively, but I want to, to speak out against that if there's a thought there that, yes, we are talking about these things explicitly and maybe this when we are American and maybe this, maybe we don't do everything the best and uh, everything doesn't come out exactly the way we want, but that we do come from an ethos of wanting to, to identify and talk about these acts of prejudice and discrimination when they come, whether they're directed at us or to someone else to say that they're wrong and that we won't stand for them. But as a, of a passionate practitioner, finding a way to do it that is not increasing the harm in the world. Mm. You said it so well. I, I, I am still taking it in. Calm down. It wasn't that serious. In fact, when I shared it with uh, someone at the hostel when I went to uh, Bagan, 
he basically said the same thing. Did you bleed? I said, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a big deal. So I can see where they're coming from. But again, I want to bring back what you said about our ethos is that it, from my personal experience, the more I talk about an issue that I felt, when the more I bring it out, the more we face it, the more we put light on it, the faster and the, the richer the relationship is. And for me, seeing this things that I have been hiding under the carpet and I've been ignoring, uh, I have not been sensitive to, or I have ignored because in order to succeed in some parts of life, you have to uh, get your hands in the cookie jar and uh, you have to ignore a few things. So I guess we can put it aside and not be sensitive, but I think we can be much deeper as a human race if we actually see the depth within us. Uh, there is humanity within us. There is something that's just not the skin color. That's just not the, uh, my religion. There's something there, but we should respect what is there. So you're right. There are going to be some listeners that might take this thing. Ah, shut up. Just like there are a lot of people that hear that says, oh, all lives matter or all blue lives matter or are oh, you taking this is not happening. If you just talk to the police a certain way or if you uh, acted right this way or that way and you're just you're there's going to be a lot of reasons. But I still think deeply that the fact that we're bringing it out and talking about it, uh, we will reap better rewards than if we ignored it. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And on that note, I want to move to uh, your experience as a black meditator in the United States, because we've been talking about it in uh, extensively in Burma. And, uh, and I think that's, that's quite interesting for our listeners, since this is a Burma Dhamma podcast, and, and we're talking about a meditator of color and their experiences there. But going back to the United States, how has your experience been in a meditator community that largely is white? Um... As far as the, when I do see one other black person, well, I, there's a small, there's just a, a lot of method that comes out of me. So basically, I'm very happy to see more people. And I've tried my best to try to get my family members into the technique. And I was only able to do my cousin. Uh, a lot of my family members are Christian, uh, Southern Christians. So anything that we do here is considered juju or bad magic or something that's uh, not looked positively because of this or that reason in the Bible. So it's been very difficult for me to bring in more people of color into the technique. But whenever I do see someone to retreats as a person of color and when we break silence, I do intentionally go out there and say, how are you? It's so good to see you. Uh, I'm glad you are you're here. And they will say the same thing. I was, they will be like, oh my God, I thought I was going to be the only one. Oh my God, I'm so glad you're here. So it's growing. We're growing. There, I, I can tell you on my last sit, and I did a 10-day sit in January 1st to the 10th or 12th this year um, before the whole corona drama. The most I've seen was, of all my seven years sitting was about five uh, of us there. So I was uh -huh. very, very, very pleased. And I, it's, this technique is coming in into my community. Uh, it's not, I'm not the only token guy anymore when I started. When I started the technique in 2012, 2013, I was the only guy there, but now I'm seeing more. So it's, it's making its way. Dhamma is making its way. And um, it's taking its time, but it's, it's making its way. Right. And do you think that there's more that could or should be done to try to outreach or bring in or adapt teaching so that a, a non-white audience can embrace it? Absolutely. Recently, I talked about it with some of the people that I've met and some of my Dhamma brothers and sisters. Uh, there's a, 
a story going to tell us in day, day 10 or 11, where he talks about a child, a mother will make a, a dessert, a kheer for her child out of goodness of her heart. And she would uh, present it to the child and the child would be like, no, I don't want this. This is disgusting. And she's like, no, you got to have it. It's really sweet and it's good for you. And uh, But I got to have it on my plate. In this case, she just goes out there, takes out his plate, and then dumps it back to his plate, brings it and gives it to him. And then he sees the cardamom and there. He said, oh, there's rocks in it. There's these stones in it. I don't want the stones in it. And she takes out the stones. And he'll just find other reasons not to have it. But finally, he has it. Uh, and this is uh, one thing uh, I want to bring in where maybe we do need a black plate to bring in this technique to be to be, be able to uh, uh, resonate with the people. Uh, there's no I, that I know of. There's not in the Goenka section that are black teachers. I don't I don't know, but it would be good to see them because it would resonate for me as when I was in college. It was good to see another black person in the neuroscience class. You just it's, it's it's not I'm not the only one. Or that when, when I was in grad school, yeah, most of the time I was the only one. But even if I see a person of color, a Latino, or it, it just makes me feel like there's somebody there with me. So we can do a lot more. I agree with you. But at the same time, I really like how, for me, the Goenka side, just, I like the way it works. It's very uh, plain. They, they, they don't try to appease everybody. I, I like the fact that it's just a technique. Uh, take it or leave it, the, the approach they have. And for me, I was fortunate to be receptive toward it. So I, I don't know how they would work it in the Goenka side, but I've heard other insight meditations and other other places that are teaching the technique are trying to be, especially in New York, they're trying to be more inclusive. They're trying to be more LGBTQ friendly. Uh, they're moving the right direction to make those so that people can have it in the plate they want. And then if they like it, they can get deeper into the technique. If they don't, Maybe next slide. Right. So I'm also curious about your experiences as a black meditator and as you were getting more serious with your practice and in your life facing acts of discrimination, racism, subtle, overt, as you started to practice more seriously, how did that affect the way your experience of racism or discrimination? The technique uh, makes you so that you are pulled over more than I can count. But I am not as reactive to the fear or, or the other things that come up. Uh, and I, there's a, an actual, sometimes a method that comes out from my mind when the police officer comes. There's a switch in my psyche. And most of the times, 90% of the times I come out of there with a pleasant interaction with the officer or even with a person that's hostile. It doesn't have to be about my race. It doesn't have to be about any any interaction, it has made it so that I'm not reactive to their garbage or to their... To, there's a certain conditioning that comes with with being black, being with dealing with police officers, with dealing other, with others. So because of the technique, I think I'm much more calmer. I'm, I'm much more peaceful. Uh, with my daily practice, I'm, uh, I can tell if I skip a day where I didn't sit, I'm a bit more fuzzy, not, uh, not in tune. So I could tell. So for me... The technique has helped me become much more active in my in my harmony and, and my metta for others. Mm, that's beautiful. That's great. And in terms of the the recent events, the, um, the police brutality, the the social injustice, the uh, the protests, and the kind of conversations that we're trying to have right now that that are really quite unprecedented, and all kinds of uh, people and institutions that are 
now open opening themselves up for scrutiny and for greater examination. I'm curious what role you think that Dhamma practice and Vipassana meditation might play to bring about a positive benefit for whites and for blacks in being able to have this kind of communication and move forward in a positive way. I was actually thinking about this, and I think the best thing this Dhamma would bring is compassion, because a lot of people are just awakening, or without any malice, it just it's coming up. So they might have said something, uh, they might have done something that might have had history of actions that are not so kosher, so to say. And through this search or that search, we bring out that they were like this. Uh, or like they might have said some offensive things, I think we could be much more kinder and say that, hey, if they apologize, they're sincere about it. This is what growth is. Uh, people grow. They, I'm not who I was last year. I'm not who I was. Thank God I'm not who I was three, five years ago. Just This is a growth. This is what a human race is. And I hope I'm not going to be the same that I am today. In a couple of years, I hope I grew more in Dhamma. I, I hope I'm more kind to others. I hope. So this is something I think we can bring in Dhamma in where it's, we cannot, we can point our fingers. Yes, there's things we can say about the police. There's reforms that need to be done. But if we are there to just burn it down uh, without sense of, it doesn't mean just rollover, but we can act with kindness. I think we will come out of it much better, much stronger. But if we're just going to be saying, hey, this person did this five years ago or two years ago and they must be this and so they must lose everything and this and that. I think that's not the right way. And this is where Dhamma and compassion will come. Where if they said something in the past, if they have done something, we need to be kind about it. Bring them into saying, hey, I have done some things in the past. There are some things that I didn't think about that I think about now. So we, this is where Dhamma would come, I think. Yeah, and that's that's really difficult, right? You know, if you're holding on to a lot of pain and injustice and unfairness. Yes. And you're trying to figure out what do you need to move on from that pain? What how do you move forward in a way that's constructive for for everyone and people are are misunderstanding each other and both feeling a sense of aggrievement or wanting to be understood? How how does the conversation and the understanding move forward? That's a really good question, and I'm going to say I don't have the answer. Me and you are fortunate that we and say, hey, uh, I have my own problems, and I'm not perfect. So I'm very grateful. It's a luxury, this this gift for us, for all of us, that we are really able to practice. It's, it's a great gift. We, we're able to see within. But, yeah, they're right. If they, they want justice from this or that, I am not the one, and you're not the one. We're not the one to say, hey, you can't do this. You have to do it with compassion, da 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 da, da. I, I don't know, brother. I really don't know. This mm -hmm. is something what time time will tell. And I hope uh, with our meditations and all around the meditation, we'll do it compassionately and kindly because there's a lot of energies at play here. Could, we're making it simple in our talk, but you can feel the tensions rising up. There are some things that are coming up in the media that it makes one group look worse than the other group. And the next day, one group looks worse than the other group. So it's it's a, it's a lot going on. I don't know, brother. That's just, uh, this is I, I this is my answer. Uh, I hope that when I'm facing someone that's agitated and angry, I hope I'm able to forgive them and I hope they're able to forgive me is what I would say. Right, right. And being a meditator who is watching these protests unfold, how are you seeing them? How are you, um, how is your meditation practice informing your following of how these protests are going and to what degree are are you hopeful and to what degree are are you um 
are you a little uncertain? I'm going to be uh, very honest with you, uh, but the last couple of months, my uh, samadhi has been terrible. I can barely concentrate. Mm-hmm. Things that I wouldn't have conversation with myself in the shower and then laugh and chuckle and then move forward. So it's been very difficult for me to laugh and chuckle and then move forward. So it's been very difficult for me to focus, but every moment that I can get with equanimity and awareness, I'm very grateful to get it. Of course, these are strange times for all of us, so there's a host of reasons, but can you pinpoint what is causing the rockiness that you're going through now? The environment itself, can, you can feel it. And one thing I would say is another thing is I'm excited to what I progress, the speed of this progress, the talk, the action that's happening. It's too much. It's just uh, like being in a very fast car, just taking it. And I'm used to a slower pace of change. So for me to uh, one minute uh, see a protest, the next minute people are taking down statues, the next minute they're firing this person, that person. It's just so much is happening so quickly. And I am connected to the world with news or this and that. And when you hear this, it comes up in your sits. It comes up in your meditations. It's pleasant sensation or unpleasant sensation. It will come up and you have a tendency of reacting to it because, uh, one, I'm black. So there's this issue that's personal. So you react to it rather than just being objective about it. And then there's tension there. It's election year. So a lot of your friends are going to be talking about this and that. And there are going to be people that are in your close circle that don't agree with certain things that you agree with. So it, it, there's a lot of things that come up in your sit uh, that where you're, you're supposed to be objective and just observe sensation and observe respiration, but it's uh, much more difficult than just uh, what said. Mm, got it. Got it. Got it. Well, this has been great. I don't know if I have anything more. Is there any, um, is there any other direction you'd like to go in or anything you'd like to share? I think uh, we've had a wonderful, wonderful discussion. I, I've grown. Um, I, I can't wait to go back to Burma with a different mm-hmm. viewpoint. Uh, I'm so glad we had this time. I've been, uh, Dhamma works in different ways, but Dhamma works. I'm glad I had a chance to talk with you in such a way. And I hope we will keep in touch and uh, at least here and there in a couple of months or here and there with our text. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm thankful that I had this opportunity. I'm thankful that we can have this discussion as Dhamma brothers and yeah, I don't have really anything else to add. It's been a great uh, couple of hours with you. Yeah, that's just great. And I think it's really wonderful to be able to to share these experiences in a more explicit way. I think that just as the last month or so has shown a light into a different experience with the Black Lives Matter movement that has been uncomfortable and jarring, but a reality that is being investigated further, maybe because a lot of the world is shut down, so there's not a lot of distractions. But in any case, the angle that we're trying to take on this podcast is where the Dhamma fits into this and where the experience of being Black while on the path is fitting into these overall changes that are happening. And I think that your talk here describes vividly the experience of a Black meditator and the reality of it in ways that, you know, that a white meditator and a white meditator that is, that is coming to practice in Burma isn't aware of the privilege and the the difference that they get that just based on the way they look. And so I think a lot of what's happening right now is, is informing people of this reality and knowledge is power. And um, rather than just fighting to, to want to change the system, to understand what the reality is. I mean, isn't that the, the essential purpose of what meditation is, is understanding that reality, even when it is uncomfortable outside and within that this information can inform you and in how, how you approach different situations and knowing better that 
the experience that you're having is not the experience that everyone else is having. So I think that that's why it was important for us to want to take the time to to tell this story and also to tell the story that transcends borders that is not just being affected within our country in America, but but also the judgments and the discrimination that's happening on the other side of the world, even when you know it might be coming from a place of of misdirection, the negativity and the the discrimination is still there. Mm. Yeah, brother. I'm fortunate to have actually this this family. So um, I can't say enough uh, about the technique for me. I hope it, it goes uh, into uh, more uh, more of my people, uh, black people. I hope they uh, get this seed and they can practice this so that uh, there would be a, a certain peace uh, within them because uh, they are suffering a lot. And it would be very helpful to have this in their life. And I'm just speaking out of my own personal experience. It's been tremendous for me. Uh, it has made me, a, made me a much better man. Yeah. So with that, I guess, yeah, we can definitely uh, end the, the discussion and we can have a good night, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for your time. And I hope our paths cross either here or somewhere else. You've always got a, a monastery room um, open to you <laughs> and hopefully a different spiritual experience when you come next time. All right, Joe. Have a wonderful night, brother. Okay. You too. Thanks again for your time. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you have enjoyed this show. For those first time listeners to this podcast, we'd like to take a moment to tell you a little bit about our team. Most all podcast contributors work entirely as volunteers, and those few receiving remuneration are meditators who have offered 50% or more discount for their professional services. Nonetheless, there are still basic costs required to produce a full episode, and for this we rely on the generous support of listeners like you. The initial donation funds that allowed us to set up this Insight Myanmar podcast came unexpectedly, and we have done our best to stretch them as far as possible. However, that generous startup donation could not have predicted the pressing need to cover current events, such as our COVID podcasts, and now the social protest movement. So, if you would like to hear podcasts that address this new content, or assist others to be able to access them, please consider making a donation to fund this work. Whatever funds we are able to collect now will be used solely for producing new episodes on this content. Thank you for your support. May you be safe and well. We welcome your contribution in any amount, denomination, and transfer method. You may give via Patreon at patreon.com slash insightmyanmar, via PayPal at paypal.me slash insightmyanmar, or by credit card by going to insightmyanmar.org slash donation. In all cases, that's insightmyanmar, one word, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R. We were honored that Aisha Shaida Simmons joined us as a co-producer on this episode. Her perspective and insights were very helpful in moving this piece to completion. You have been listening to the Insight Myanmar podcast. We would appreciate it very much if you would be willing to rate, review, and or share this podcast. Every little bit of feedback helps. If you are interested, you can subscribe to the Insight Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, please check out our website for a list of our complete episodes, including additional text, videos, and other information at www.insightmyanmar.org. That's Insight Myanmar, one word, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R. 
If you cannot find our feed on your podcast player, please let us know and we will ensure that it can be offered there. There was certainly a lot to talk about in this episode, and we'd like to encourage listeners to keep the discussion going. Make a post, request specific questions, and join in our discussions on the Insight Myanmar podcast Facebook group. You are also most welcome to follow our Facebook and Instagram accounts by the same name of Insight Myanmar. And if you're not on Facebook, you can also message us directly at burmadama at gmail.com. That's B-U-R-M-A-D-H-A-M-M-A at gmail.com, and we're also active on Wheel. If you'd like to start up a discussion group on another platform, let us know, and we can share that forum here. Finally, we're open to suggestions about guests or topics for future episodes. So if you have someone or something in mind, please do be in touch. We would also like to take this time to thank everyone who made this podcast possible, especially our two sound engineers, Martin Combs and Tharng A. There's, of course, Zach Hessler, content collaborator and part-time co-host. Ken Pransky helps with editing. Dragos Bandita and Andre Francois produce original artwork. And a special Mongolian volunteer who is asked to remain anonymous does our social media templates. We'd also like to thank everyone who assisted us in arranging for the guests we have interviewed so far. And of course, we send a big thank you to the guests themselves for agreeing to come and share such powerful personal stories. Finally, we are immensely grateful for the donors who made this entire thing possible. We also remind our listeners that the opinions expressed by our guests are their own and not necessarily reflective of the host or other podcast contributors. Please also note, as we are mainly a volunteer team, we do not have the capacity to fact check our guest interviews. By virtue of being invited on our show, there is a trust that they will be truthful and not misrepresent themselves or others. If you have any concerns about the statements made on this or other shows, please contact us. This recording is the exclusive right of Insight Myanmar podcast and may not be used without the expressed written permission of the podcast owner, which includes video, audio, written transcripts, and excerpts of any episodes. It is also not meant to be used for commercial purposes. On the other hand, we are very open to collaboration, so if you have a particular idea in mind for sharing any of our podcasts or podcast-related information, please feel free to contact us with your proposal. As you know, our podcasts are 100% listener-supported. We welcome your contribution in any amount, denomination, and transfer method. You may give via Patreon at patreon.com slash insightmyanmar, via PayPal at paypal.me slash insightmyanmar, or by credit card by going to insightmyanmar.org slash donation. In all cases, that's Insight Myanmar, one word, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R. If you'd like to give especially to support our new run of coronavirus episodes, please go on the GoFundMe site and search Insight Myanmar to find our campaign. If you are in Myanmar and would like to give a cash donation, please feel free to get in touch with us. Thanks, and see you next show.